Good morning. Let's open in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we may come together, that we're able to come together, Lord, to come and worship you and learn more about you, Lord. We ask that your Holy Spirit come in today and be with us, and may our hearts be open to the message that's sent. This we ask in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Frank will be bringing us our message today. Thank you, Frank. Uh, it's good to see see you. Uh, just as a reminder, if if you're not here, uh, or or for those you know who are not here and you want to spread the word, that uh, you know John's still we're taking the podcasts and and he's still putting them up there. So or even if you were here and want to hear it again. How about that, Frank? Let's see whether, you, whether they ask for encores. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Let's worship our Lord. This is out of Billy Graham's thought for today. And um, for May 25th, it's victory over sin. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's out of Romans 8, 37. We sing onward Christian soldiers marching as to war, but so often when Satan mounts an attack against us, we behave as if we are prisoners of war, or worse, conscientious objectors. But as Christians, we don't have to live a defeated life. God wants us to live victorious lives, lives that are uh, constantly conquering the sin in our lives. There is only one way to have victory over sin, that is to walk closely with Christ, that sin no longer dominates your life. It becomes the exception rather than the rule. Why does a close walk with Christ make the difference? Simply this, the closer we are to Christ, the farther we are from Satan. The Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. James 4, 7 through 8. Is the devil farther away from you today than he was yesterday? If not, why not? Hope for today, because of Christ, we are conquerors, and the victory is ours. The blood of Jesus enables us to draw near to God and enjoy his protection, and we no longer have to fear this enemy. The Battle Hymn of the Republic. March if you want.
Our Old Testament scripture today comes from Psalm 68, verses 1 through 10 and 32 through 35. Rise up, O God, and scatter your enemies. Let those who hate God run for their lives. Blow them away like smoke. Melt them like wax in a fire. Let the wicked perish in the presence of God. But let the godly rejoice. Let them be glad in God's presence. Let them be filled with joy. Sing praises to God in his name. Sing loud praises to him who rides in the clouds. His name is the Lord. Rejoice in his presence. Father to the fatherless, defender of the widows. This is God whose dwelling is holy. God places the lonely in families. He sets the prisoners free and gives them joy. But he makes the rebellious live in the sun-scorched land. God, when you lead your people out of Egypt, when you march through the dry wasteland, the earth trembled and the heavens poured down rain. Before you, before God, the God of Israel, you sent abundant rain, O God, to refresh the weary land. There your people finally settled with the bountiful harvest. O God, you provide for your needy people. Sing to God, your kingdom of earth. Sing praises to the Lord. Sing to the one who rides across the ancient heavens, his mighty voice thundering from the sky. Tell everyone about God's power. His majesty shines down on Israel. His strength is mighty in the heavens. God is awesome in his sanctuary. The God of Israel gives power and strength to his people. Praise be to God. And if you'd like to stand as we say the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy earth on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
New Testament reading today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verses 1 through 11. After saying all these things, Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that he can give glory back to you. For you have given him authority over everyone. He gives eternal life to each one you have given him. And this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. I have revealed you to the ones you gave me from this world. They were always yours. You gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything I have is a gift from you. For I have passed on to them the message you gave me. They accepted it and know that I came from you. And they believe you sent me. My prayer is not for the world, but for those who have given you have given me. Because they belong to you. All who are mine belong to you, and you have given them to me, so they bring me glory. Now I am departing from the world, and they are staying in this world, but I am coming to you. Holy Father, you have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name so that they will be united just as we are. Take your bullets and we have responsive reading. Wake us up, living God, to the joy and wonder that is all around us. Open our eyes to the beauty of the world in which we live. Open our hearts to the love that exists in our relationships. Open our minds to the truth you have to share with us. Lead us out of the darkness of the routine and enable us to see the light. This is our, pr our prayer, the one who came to show us the way, the truth, the light, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you gave us all that we have. You entrusted it to us. You call for us to give back. So Lord, the gifts that we give today, the gifts that we drop in the box, the gifts that Chuck shakes people down for, Lord, let us, let this all be used to further your kingdom. Let others through this time of, time of, of stress, finally realize that the only relief comes through you. Lord, let them become part of your family and let us help encourage them. This we ask in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> How's everybody holding up with the uh, <sighs> sheltering in place? Well, let's open with a word of prayer this morning. Thank you, Father, for your goodness. Thank you that you are at work um, in the world, um, that even when we don't see it, 
even when we don't believe it many times. You are at work. And we confess that you are the great God of the universe, the great, the one who gave himself for our sins. And we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that we have a God who cares for us, who hears us, who loves us, and is involved in our lives. And we just pray this morning that you will speak to each one of us out of your word and that your word will be uh, uh, just come alive in our hearts. And I pray for the anointing of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I know that um, just, just talking, just saying things um, uh, has often very little impact in our lives. But Lord, when your Holy Spirit leads us and when your Holy Spirit speaks through us, it, it transforms lives. And I'm praying for that this morning, that you will transform lives through the sharing of your word. And we commit this time into your hands, Father. You are a great and mighty God, moved by your Holy Spirit in our lives and in our hearts this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Um, this week, uh, as uh, Dolores mentioned it in the prayers, um, I had a, it was a, a three and a half hour pastor's round table put on by the Family Research Council and, um, and in it, uh, President Trump spoke and Secretary of State of Pompeo and Secretary of Housing Human Development, Ben Carson, Chad Wolf, the Acting Secretary of Homeland Security, Eric Hargan, Hargan the Deputy Secretary of Health and Human Services, and many others. Um, and what it really impressed me is that uh, there are believers um, in, in our government, and I'm, I'm very thankful for that. And what I want to talk to you about, about this morning is hollow and deceptive philosophy. And I want to contrast a, what we could call a secular humanist worldview with a biblical Christian worldview. And I have a paper that I've written um, in the back, and I, I put it on the table back there, and it's 21 pages where it lists a whole bunch of stuff about, uh, you know, both from a secular perspective and from, the, uh, and from the Bible, contrasting these two worldviews. And if you want that, I have a sign-up sheet back there, and you can sign it, and I'll send it to you electronically. My printer um, went belly up a while back, and, and so I don't have the ability to print them out right now, so, uh, but I can send them to you electronically. C.S. Lewis wrote this. He said, the greatest evil is not done in those sordid dens of crime, I love the way Lewis writes, that Dickens loved to paint, it is conceived and moved, seconded and carried and minuted, in clean, carpeted, warmed, and well-lighted offices, by quiet men with white collars and cut fingernails and smooth-shaven cheeks who do not need to raise their voices. <laughs> and another quote, Profound social changes often trace their origins not to sinister cons conspiracies, but to the paneled libraries of genial philosophers, or the study alcoves of the British Museum, or the crowded cafes of the universities. And then this statement, powerful movements are rooted in the realm of ideas. And most, you know, if we trace, um, fundamental shifts that take place in any culture, 
It, we need to go up a bit? Okay. Can somebody turn, we, we need to turn the volume, my wife says, up just a wee bit. John said that, I guess John said that before. Uh, can you hear me okay? Am I coming? How about you, Chuck and Sally? You can hear me okay. It's just my wife. <laughs> I'll put a hearing aid on her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, selective. But, but you know, if we, if we trace the, you know, profound social changes that take place, it usually starts out in, um, in a shift of ideas. And that's what we're seeing in our nation today. We're seeing a shift in ideas, a shift from, you know, certainly not what we could call in our country a, 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 a biblical Christian worldview. I mean, you know, certainly some of that in our culture, but moving away from that toward more a secular humanist worldview. And it's not done, you know, out, out where people can see it and uh, in great demonstrations and all that kind of stuff. It's done very quietly in the realm of ideas. In Colossians 3, or 2, I'm sorry, uh, 2, 8, and 9, and 10. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. So we're going to concentrate this morning. Last week, we talked more about uh, how Jesus is the answer to uh, the philosophy of the age, but this morning we're going we're to hone in on the hollow and deceptive philosophy of our own age, uh, this secular humanism. And the, Paul wrote this letter to the church in Colossae um, because they were involved in what some have, des have described as the Colossian heresy. There, were, uh, there was wrong teaching that had infiltrated the church. And it found itself in ceremonialism, uh, strict rules about the kinds of permissible food and drink, religious festivals, circumcision. Uh, it was asceticism. And angel, the worship of angels. And generally, the depreciation of Christ. And the forming of secret knowledge and secret you know, secret rituals in which you could get, you know, higher, higher understanding and so on. And then last, reliance on human wisdom and tradition. And so uh, Paul was countering then this hollow and deceptive philosophy that it infiltrate this Lycus Valley area. And he says, uh, don't, don't let anyone take you captive. So the problem with wrong teaching is that it takes us captive. And the, the picture that's used here, the Greek, is that of a long procession of prisoners being led away with a rope around their necks. And in some ways, we as, as, you know, as a culture are being led away with a rope around our necks, you know, uh, tied to each other, in a philosophy that if we really understood it, we would say, whoops, I, you know, I'm not going there. But, but it's so gradual and it's, so, it's, it's introduced so uh, carefully that we don't recognize it until, you know, until somebody calls it 
our attention to it. And that's what we're going to do. And so Paul describes this philosophy in the Colossian church as, first of all, as hollow. And that is that it, it looks good, it has substance to it, it looks like it has substance, but inside it's hollow. It doesn't go anywhere. Uh, this is really what, uh, the, the Greek word actually is, is the word kenos, which means emptier, without content. And the philosophy of our age is, is empty. It looks good on the outside, it makes sense, it's rational and so on, um, but it doesn't go anywhere, it, it's contentless. Um, I think I've mentioned this before, that before I came to Christ, um, Caroline and I came to Christ within three days of each other, and before I came to Christ, I was studying psychology, and uh, I was getting a bachelor's in psychology at that time. Went back to get it, because I'd already graduated. Um, and I, I just kept running into uh, this hollowness, you know, that there, it looked good, there were good theories out there, and then I would, you know, I'd get to the end of that and I'd go, wait a minute, that didn't work. And, and gradually other people would say, yeah, you know, I'm not saying that was leading, I'm just saying people would look at, uh, look at these different uh, theories in psychology and get to the end of them and say they didn't work, it didn't hold water because it's empty and without content. It's an illusion, it sounded good, appealed to natural religious instinct, but there was nothing in it for those who know Christ. But not only was it hollow, and is it hollow, but it is deceptive. <clears throat> that is, there's a purposeful deception which is intended by some who profess the new teachings. Now, and we're not saying that everybody who believes in secular humanism is, is deceptive, is intentionally trying to deceive other people. I don't believe that. But what we can say is that they are deceived. That every person who believes in what we would call secular humanism um, is deceived, even though they may not purposely be trying to deceive other people, they are themselves deceived. And Paul says that it depends upon human tradition and the basic principles of this world. So the first thing is that it is, it is humanism. It's in the, the Greek word is paradosis, which means a handing down or a handing over. And in the New Testament, it signified, in a passive sense, teachings about ways of doing things that are handed down from generation to generation, Tradition, such as Christian doctrine handed out, or teaching, instruction, tradition. Okay, so the, the thing is that these deceptive, hollow and deceptive philosophies are passed on from generation to generation, and that's why we don't recognize them. Um, I, the hardest philosophy to comprehend is the one that we've grown up with, isn't it? Because we don't sit. We don't, we don't you know, we, we were taught that. We were always taught that. We were taught it from the time we went, went in, uh, into kindergarten. We were taught these, this hollow and deceptive philosophy, and so, you know, it, it's just part of who we are. And it's really hard to break out of that. Uh, we had the same thing in Turkey. We were, you know, the Timothy Project that I started, we were, 
You know, what we were trying to do was to, was to call Turks' attention to their own hollow and deceptive philosophy so that they could uh, move over and, and be transformed in their thinking uh, to a biblical worldview. But it's hard. You know, I, and I found out as, a, as an outsider, I could go in and see all those things. You know, I could, I could see easily what the problems were, and some of the philosophical problems, but they couldn't. And just the same as people coming into our culture, you know, they look at our culture and they say, they say, well, I, why can't you see that? Why can't you see these problems? And we, you know, I've always, bought, you know, I grew up with them. I don't see them. The second source of the philosophy in Colossae was the basic principles of this world. So in other words, there is, in the, in the word in the Greek, is it's, it's, a, it's satanic spirits, it's wrong spirits. There's elemental spirits that are at work, and there are elemental spirits at work in our culture to deceive us. They come from Satan. The source is Satan. Satan is deceiving us and leading us astray with wrong teaching. Okay, so let's talk then about the hollow and deceptive philosophy of our age. And I've, I've, I'm, I'm labeling this secular humanism, but it's bigger than that. That's just kind of a catch-all phrase or you know, a, a way we can describe it. But it's, it's all the ungodly teaching that there is. Ungodliness that there is. Anything which is not um, biblical, you know, biblical Christianity and rooted in the Word of God, everything else we can call it uh, you know, secular humanism, even though that's a, that's a broad term to try to describe it. And I'll be quoting from the Humanist Manifesto 1, the Humanist Manifesto 2. Uh, I'll, be, I'll be referring to, but not quoting from. And if you want to find more you know, original sources, they're in, that, uh, they're in the paper that I wrote. So the first area is the view of God. And secular humanism, the view of God, the assumption that it's based upon is that there is no God. All right. God does not exist, and it's what we call naturalism or a closed system. That is, that there's nothing from the outside, no one from the outside, that impinges upon our life. It's all just this world and the way that we deal with it. So there's no sense of supernaturalism. Everything is just natural. And our modern educational system was greatly influenced by John Dewey, who is one of the signers of Humanist Manifesto I. And so a lot of our educational system is based upon the philosophy that there is no God. Um, when I was growing up, there, there were Catholic schools, but there were no you know, Protestant schools. No, um, and so I, w I was brought up in secular humanism, and I bought it, I'll tell you. I was fully, you know... I was fully on board with secular humanism until I came to Christ. Biblical Christianity starts from the premise that there is a God who created and preserves the universe, and we believe that there is sufficient evidence that there is a God. God is supernatural. God impinges. God comes, you know, came to earth in the person of Christ, and God interferes in our lives. And, and, and we have a relationship with God. So we believe in supernaturalism, not just naturalism. Secondly, authority. Secular humanism starts from the premise that if there is no God, all right, if God does not exist, then we're on our own. 
then man is his own final authority. And I think that this really is the root of secular humanism. That it is, it is believed by people who don't want to submit to God, and so therefore we have to invent some kind of system that, that we can buy into and that makes sense um, because there is no God, they would say. And the source of truth then becomes the scientist and the philosopher, not the theologian or not God. We look to the scientific method, not scripture for truth. Um, and you know, you look at television programs today and, and when they call in the experts, who are the experts? They're scientists, they're philosophers maybe, but most of the time scientists, they're practitioners and so on. But how often do you hear them, you know, hear a television program where they call in the expert and it's a theologian? Sometimes, but not very often. Biblical Christianity starts from the premise that man is subject to God and under the authority of God. And so we as Christians, part of, you know, I think the essence of Christianity is that we say, God, you exist and I submit myself to you. You are my authority. And it's no longer just what I think. My whole life revolves around um, finding out what God thinks about things and then putting it into practice. God is our authority. Man's nature, secular humanist view, is that man is inherently good. All right? And you, you see it, whatever, whatever other philosophy you find, I find this with Islam, it's the same thing. Man is inherently good. So if there is no God, and I'm not under authority, then man is inherently good, and it's just a matter of discovering uh, what that goodness is. We'll talk more about that later. The biblical view, of course, is that starts from the premise that man is inherently, innately sinful. There's a problem in the heart of man, every single one of us. And so we, you know, we recognize that there is sin, and therefore we, you know, none of us has the answer, only God has the answer. And so that's why we connect with, with God, because he does have the answer. I'm sinful, I can't understand it. And my, and my own thinking is, is distorted. Only God has that which is not distorted. Christ came to set us free from that. And that every part of us is tainted with, let me just back up a minute. And when we say that we have a sinful nature, it doesn't mean that everything we think and everything we do is wrong. It just means that everything in our lives, every thought we have, every part of us, is tainted in some way by sin. And we cannot have a relationship with God unless and until the issue of sin is dealt with. And that's what Christ did on the cross. Christ came to deal with the sin because we have a sinful nature. Secondly, we believe that guilt is objective and not subjective. A lot of what, uh, you know, secular humanists deal with is that there's, you know, if we say that there is no God, but there's still something that's wrong in the heart of man, and they, you know, everybody recognizes that, and so uh, many secular humanists then um, deal with the subjective guilt that they deal with. So you've got to do something with that. And we say, 
It's not subjective guilt that's important, it's objective. We do stand guilty before God. That's what it means. We don't feel guilty, we are guilty. And thirdly, we believe that man is not perfectible by his own efforts, but only by the transforming work of God's Spirit within us. So we can't reach our human potential through transformation, only through transformation, not reformation. All right? So just trying and trying to be a good person will never work. We have to have a, a work of God in our hearts, in our lives, transforming that, that sinful nature within us and renewing us so that we can, we can, under, we can think straight. So the issue is one of power to overcome, not merely a matter of intention. Fourth, source of our problems. Secular humanism takes inner disharmony and societal corruption as the source of our problems. If man is inherently good, and we look at man and what happens in the world, then we've got to have some kind of way that we say, well, okay, if man is inherently good, and what we see is man not so good, then something's wrong. And so they say, well, it's society that corrupts man. We as Christians say, no, it's man that corrupts society. You put man in any kind of society, any kind of culture, he's going to corrupt it. And the goal of ethics and of psychology then, for the humanist, is to help us as human beings to feel good about ourselves and to help us to achieve inner harmony. So we all believe that there's a problem. The question is, who do we blame for those problems? We as Christians, we say, it's not, it's not out there. It's not society that's corrupting me. It's me that's corrupting society. The problem is me. There's no perfect society because there are no perfect people. Fourth, fifth, rather, primary tool. Secular humanist looks at the world and takes human reason as the fundamental tool for discovering what is ethical and what is not, what is right and what is wrong. So we have to think our way, and, and if, if man can, is perfectible, as, uh, you know, as they would say, by his own effort, then, um, then we can do that through just thinking. We talked more about, the, we talked about this last week. We can think our way to uh, redemption, so, so to speak. The biblical view is that we cannot change ourselves. We need more than human effort to see genuine inner transformation. In order to get right, in order to see things right, in order to have a, a life which is, which is pleasing to God and to others, we have to, be, we have to have inner transformation. Six is the methodology for reform. Secular humanists says that mental health can be restored to everyone who gets in touch with his real good self. If man is, is inherently good and society is corrupting man, then they say that we've got to get in touch with our real selves, that inner being, the inner being of who we are. And so, you know, psychology, then much of psychology then, is aimed at dealing with, you know, dealing with the guilt and, try, and helping us to get in touch with our real selves. Because if I'm good, 
and society has corrupted me, then inside of me there's something good in there. And it, so we've got to use different kinds of methodology to try to get to that, that core of who I am. When we discover that, then we have mental health and healing and so on. Well, of course, we as, from a biblical perspective, we say not so fast. <laughs> because you peel off the layers of the onion and you get down to the core and it's still an onion. <laughs> and so, so it, you know, it doesn't do, it doesn't, you know, yes, yes, we want to, you know, we want to discover who we are and so on. That's, that's not what we're saying. What we're saying that inside, in that inner core of who we are, we've got to find Christ. We've got to be renewed on the inside. The Bible says clearly and repeatedly that our inner nature is not good, but is tainted by sin. And those who get in touch with their inner nature nature might feel good about themselves, but they are not acting morally because they're still sinners. In other words, if we're going to have morality, it's not going to come from us just intending to do right and discovering who I am on the inside. The sin nature has to be dealt with, and no matter how self-actualized people feel, they're not right with God. Furthermore, we cannot look within and find mental health since mental health means that we are integrated and whole and we can't be integrated unless we're touch, in touch with God and unless we are sacrificing our lives for, for our lives for someone else. So it's a whole different, you know, it's a whole different uh, framework. Again, you find lots more detail um, uh, in that paper. And last, the ultimate goal. Secular humanist perspective is, wants to create a utopian society in which inequality between classes of people is abolished and in which there is material or economic equality in the world. The utopian society takes place when we no longer divide huma humanity along nationalistic grounds but establish a transnational federal government. Okay? Don't we see that a lot today? Uh, in other words, we put our faith, uh, so, so what they would say is the problem is that we have all these, na you know, this nationalism, um, you know, <laughs> that we just sung about, that's the problem. And what we need to do is to, is to have a better consciousness away from just sheer nationalism and put our faith in a transnational government. Okay, so we put our faith at this point in the United Nations. And we, and we try to build up the United Nations. Well, the biblical perspective is that if you concentrate power in the hands of fewer people who are still sinners, then you've got a problem. In fact, our whole government, our whole system of government in America was built on the concept of, the, of um, sharing of power. Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely, is what we believe. Because, because we are sinners by nature, all of us, everyone, we have found trust, distrust of the goodness of man. Dennis Prager said, much, perhaps even most, evil does not emanate from particular evil, particularly evil people, or even from the bad or self-centered parts of human, human nature, but from the good and idealistic parts. 
So it's often the problem doesn't come from those who, you know, as, as we talked about before, uh, Dickens, you know, <coughs> characters in the dens of iniquity. It comes from good and idealistic people who just don't happen to believe that man is a sinner. And so it, the problem is in society. And our system of government was founded on checks and balances to avoid the concentration of power in the hands of a few people. Well, the founders of our, natural, of our nation, thank God, understood that too much power in, any per, in anyone's hands is going to bring corruption. And so there's checks and balances, and we have three branches of government, and there's checks and powers on each and every, uh, each and every branch of government so that they can't run away with power because we believe that man is sinful. We don't necessarily believe in a world government, but in a godly government. Furthermore, we understand that Jesus didn't seek to establish an earthly kingdom. He didn't come to produce a, uh, you know, America as a, um, as, you know, as his kingdom, but he came to bring the kingdom of God to earth, as we just prayed in the Lord's Prayer. So the only way that righteousness is going to reign on earth is when Jesus comes back. Isn't that right? I mean, we look forward to that. I'm not, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't, we shouldn't be working toward more godly government. Certainly we do. We do everything we can. We pull out all the stops in order to uh, you know, establish a godly government. But we know, there's a, uh, there's a caveat in that, that we know that righteousness isn't going to reign on earth until Jesus comes back. Until the king of kings is seated on the throne, there's going to be problems everywhere. Okay, so Paul goes on, and he says in verses 9 and 10, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. So the first thing we need to understand is that in Christ is all the fullness that we need. In other words, we don't need another philosophy. We need to know Christ better. We as believers then, our focus is not trying to understand everything, but our focus is on Christ, understanding Christ, looking to Christ. Only Christ is going to make the difference in our lives and in the lives of other people. So our focus is still on making sure that Christ, that we present Christ to our culture, to our people, to the ones we love. The answer to everything is, the foundation of it is, get to know Christ better. Colossians 1.19, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And furthermore, we have been given fullness in Christ. The reason that we don't need hollow and deceptive philosophy is that we have all we need in Christ. Now again, I'm not against education and learning and all that kind of stuff. I have lots of education. But at core, if we have Christ, we have everything. And without him, we have nothing. Ephesians 1.3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You have everything that you need in Christ. You have all the power that you need for everyday life. 
You have all the healing you need, the philosophical wisdom, emotional strength, spiritual fullness, completeness, wholeness as a person, purpose for living, motivation to live a meaningful life, and so on and so forth. It's all there in Christ. We don't need another philosophy. So the goal then is not to you know, learn all these other things and someday come to Christ. It's to come to Christ and Christ begins to work in our lives and reveal who he is and reveal truth to us. Christ is complete and you are complete in him. We are the salt of the earth. We're the preservative that keeps our culture from destruction. You and I are the salt that God has placed into American culture and whatever culture we're a part of in order to keep it from disintegrating and destroying itself because it doesn't depend on God. I'm going to re-quote um, re what I quoted earlier on. Panel, profound social changes often trace their origins not to sinister conspiracies, but to the paneled libraries of genial philosophers or the study alcoves of the British Museum or the crowded cafes of the universities, powerful movements are rooted in the realm of ideas. So I believe that we as Christians then, we are called to, to take this Christian worldview and help people to understand that you know, our culture is not going to get there unless they put their faith in Christ. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, in a famous uh, um, talk that he gave, and I believe it was at Harvard uh, graduation or something like that, he says this. Do you know who Alexander Solzhenitsyn is? a great uh, Russian intellectual and, uh, and, uh, and historian. And he says this. Over half a century ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of older people offer the following explanation for the great disaster that had befallen Russia. Russia. I was talking about the, you know, the fall into communism, what was it, 1917. Men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Since then, I have spent well nigh 50 years working on the history of our revolution. In the process, I have read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, and have already con contributed eight volumes of my own toward the effort of clearing away the rubble left by the upheaval. But if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, Stalin killed 60 million of his own people, just for starters. I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God, that's why all this has happened. So I believe it's as, as Christians then, our task is to help to refashion our culture. And, and we have been on this, this downward slope toward secular humanism, moving away from God, turning our backs on God. And I believe that God has called us as biblical Christians to say, whoops, we're going the other direction. We believe that the center of our culture needs to be in Christ, a biblical worldview. We need to point others to Christ, who's the fullness of the deity and the power of God. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So what do we do? We get informed. 
Um, I've listed on, I, I believe it shows up on your, um, on the outline that I've given, um, five resources that uh, are a starting place. You can look at some of these things. <coughs> Vote, study God's word, and be transformed into the image of Christ. And I believe that we've, you know, <coughs> that the first thing we need to do is get our lives right with Christ and learn all we can about who Jesus is and who we are as Christians and what a biblical view, world view is and, and how to think Christianly. That's what God has called us to do, to think Christianly about absolutely everything because Christ is the foundation of all wisdom and information and knowledge. And then God has called us to take that out into the world and make a difference in our culture. May God give you strength as you do that. May he bless your efforts. God bless you.
Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, let us take these words that we've heard today. Let us look for the biblical view, how you would have us live. And let us, let that be in our souls. Let that, let us recognize that we are all flawed and that we can only strive to get better. And the only way to do that is as your son has taught us. So Lord, let that become part of us and let that be, be part of our hearts as we ask in your son Jesus' name, amen. Amen.